0: All right, good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us again this morning. Uh, we are continuing to look at the early church. Uh, before we jump in this morning, I want to remind you of some important ways uh, for you to stay connected during the season of social distancing. Communication is always a challenge, always, and it is ridiculously challenging right now. Um, we don't see each other, uh, it, it is easy to grow distant, and so um, if you haven't yet, let me let me appeal to you as as uh, a father to his children um please download this app okay uh this is an important way for you to stay connected to our community if you have not downloaded the church center app yet please do so uh it, it, we have our bible reading plan on there we we uh you can give through the app there, there's so it it is one of the important ways you stay connected and then secondly if you uh, are willing to do so, I would love for you to text Yeah Buddy to 618-266-3210. If you do that, you will join our text list and you will get text updates of important information. Right? It's the fastest and most reliable way for us to give you timely updates, important information or important and necessary announcements we we promise that we will not abuse this privilege and uh, you can always text stop if you don't like it or text some other message and we will get it right but you do have to actually text yeah buddy to that number right you can't just make up some random phrase and text it to that number you might end up actually subscribing to somebody else's text list okay so so actually yeah buddy I picked that because I thought it was actually I think Lori picked that one um but it's easy, right? Yeah, buddy. All right, there we go. There we go. This morning, we are looking at the early church, right? We read this, this passage, this paragraph in Acts chapter 2. And what we see is, is a church that, in the midst of stress, in the midst of, of conflict, in, in the midst of suffering and loss, they are experiencing a countercultural and unexplainable, unexplainable joy right they they have freedom even though they're constrained they have boldness even though they're under threat they they have rich and deep and profound community even though at this point in time they're still for a large part strangers right when you have thousands of people joining the uh the household of faith that quickly i mean you're just learning to know names let alone know people and yet they have this profound experience of community. Listen, they didn't just survive, they thrived, right? And and if we want to thrive in our time of suffering and not just survive, we need to follow their example. We need to take a look at what drove them and analyze what drives us. Last week, we saw that everything in their lives was aligned with their purpose, right? Uh, I came up with a diagram this week. Uh, My creative team is not going to like me because I came up with it late in the week, which means I didn't have time to submit it to them for them to make it look pretty for you. So here you go, you get my sketch, okay? Um, But uh, believe it or not, all of these ideas are developing in my head as I preach and work my way through. And so this diagram would have been great to have last week, but I hadn't thought of it yet. So uh, when you look at this diagram, it's just very simply three um, concentric circles, right? In the outer circle, uh, you have the great commandment. I don't know if you can read that. It says the great commandment, which simply is love God, love others. Okay, inside, the circle inside of that is the great commission that flows from the great commandment, right? The great commission is to be disciples and make disciples, right? Be people who are growing in the love of God and leading others to grow in the love of God, okay? And then inside of that is the third circle, which are the core practices, right? And so, the reason this, this is important is that the core practices, if they are practiced outside of their purpose, not only are not helpful, but can actually become destructive. Okay? They need to be. And so the way this works is we start from the outermost circle and our, work our way in to we to experience the love of God which awakens us to the commission of our lives, which is to grow in that love and help others love God, which then awakens us to the core practices, which are ways that we experience that love, which then drive us back out through the circles, back to the love of God. It, it is this, this movement in and out that is transformative, okay? Coming from the love of God, growing in the love of God, pushing us back to the love of God, okay? All right, so um, very, we looked at this last week that, that it starts in love, it transforms in love, and it moves out in love, Two weeks ago, we saw that the um the key word in this passage, that they were devoted to these core practices. They were devoted to these things. We looked at that word and saw that what that meant was they were developing holy habits or liturgies. Right? Liturgies are very simply patterns that we develop in our lives that express a desire and form our desires. We all have daily liturgies. They all, we all do things by habit every single day. These are intentional holy habits that are designed to not only express our desire to grow in the love of God, but actually shape that desire and help us grow in the love of God. Now, I had originally, as, as I shared last week, identified five core values uh, or we later named them as the five core practices from this text, and I taught them as, as kind of five pillars of, of spiritual strength, the five pillars of a strong church, or the five pillars of, of a strong spiritual life, and, and realized, as I've been wrestling with it, that, that that metaphor, that structure was wrong. It just was off. These are, these are, you know, um, these are not five independent habits developed in isolation from each other. Right when we look them, look at them that way, we we divorce them from their purpose, and we actually undermine their their true value. Right, they are overlapping values that create a single experience. Right, they are overlapping values that ultimately create a single experience. They're not five separate experiences. Um, they they are a single experience. So Acts two forty two tells us that the early church was devoted to the apostles' doctrine, studying the word. We'll get into that. The fellowship, we're going to get into that today. Community. Uh, The breaking of bread, which we identify as worship. Again, we'll explain why. The prayers, uh, so daily rhythms of individual and corporate prayer. And then they met in the temple daily, which we identified as mission, right? They were still going outside of the Christian community and engaging those who had not yet become believers with the love that God had given them. Now, I made the mistake of uh, pulling the abstract truths of this, of this paragraph out of the complexity of their lived experience. That, that was really my mistake as I, as I was dealing with this passage earlier. And as a result, I inadvertently think I lost the heart of what the early church was actually experiencing. Um, these weren't abstract values of individual habits. They were shared values of lived experience. And that's vitally important. They were not individual abstract values that were practiced in isolation. They were shared values of lived experience. They were a community on mission sharing a rich experience of growing in the word, being transformed by worship, and engaging their God in prayer. Today, I want to focus on the first half of what it means to be a community on mission. So today, we're going to be looking at um, this word community or what is called the fellowship in acts 242 when it says the early church was devoted to the fellowship. Now fellowship's a funny word, right? Fellowship is a is a very churchy word. I don't think I've ever really heard the word fellowship um, modern, you know, we got the fellowship of odd fellows downtown uh that building but but like in modern times fellowship pretty much is a churchy word and not just that, it's kind of an old school Churchy word. Um, it feels kind of religious, right? I remember growing up, not growing up. I remember as a young believer um, going into churches, and, and almost all of them had a fellowship hall, right? And as soon as I say that, you probably have a picture in your head, right? It was always like this basement with with asbestos linoleum flooring or tile. Uh, it smelled of old Folgers. Um, it was it was a little dark, right? A little dated, even back then and it was where people in suits would come and hang out and shake hands and pass some friendly greetings and ask how Aunt Martha's doing, and, and then they'd say, hey, it's great seeing you, and they would leave. Okay? So the fellowship hall was often the basement of the church where people would go down and grab a cup of coffee uh, and connect with, with others. Right. Um, ironically, as I grew in my faith and had more experience, I realized that a lot of these churches had fellowship halls that didn't have a whole lot of real fellowship. They met on Sundays and they did their church thing and they went down and grabbed their coffee and shook hands, but that was kind of it, right? There wasn't a whole lot of community and there wasn't often a whole lot of of mission. Now, here's the thing. We don't call it fellowship. We call it community. Um, We've updated the terminology. Uh, We don't have a fellowship hall. We have community groups. Um, But here's the thing, y'all. Just because we changed the language and we changed the structure, we're no longer meeting in the basement for uh, for coffee, we're meeting in people's homes. That doesn't mean we're not in danger of falling into the same error that the church has for the last 2,000 years. In fact, I think we would be pretty arrogant to think that just because we have community groups, groups somehow we have community. Just because we've changed the name from fellowship to community, we've solved this this chronic problem of, of not actually engaging and having genuine community. If we're not careful, we're going to end up with the same place. Right, that many who ahead of us have gone right with something called community, that doesn't look anything like the actual experience community that was experienced in in the early church. Right, if we're going to be devoted to the fellowship, if we're going to be devoted to community, we need to know what it is. So let's take a little bit of time and talk about what biblical community is. First, let's just deal with the word. Okay, uh, the word fellowship or the word community is the Greek word koinonia. Okay. Now I don't often put, uh, this is a, a Greek word study uh, in chart form. I don't put these up very often because um, most of the time they're not that helpful. And, uh, but, but I, I want to highlight something. The word in the center is koinonia. That's our word, fellowship, community. Um, what I want you to see on this graph is I want you to see the range of meanings that this word has. Okay. So if you can't read it, because I know it's kind of small in here, let me explain it to you. The blue is fellowship. By and large, koinonia, for the most part, is translated fellowship. We would call it community. Same word. Okay, it's that same idea. Um it's used the most, but I also want you to see there's a range of other meanings, right? Um, so in the red, you've got participation. In the dark orange, share or sharing, in the light orange, contribution in the yellow part, in the in the greenish partnership. Um Half the time this word is used, it means something different but related. And and here's what I want you to catch. Um, These are many different ways to translate the same word. They're all the same word, but there are many ways to translate the same word. And these words um, are, it's like you take a diamond, you know, you turn it and you see different facets of it. You take this word koinonia and turn it slightly, you see different facets of it. All of these meanings are intrinsically related. Right? You can't understand one meaning of the word without seeing it in the context of its broader scope of meanings. So, so what, what do all of these words have in common? Right, Share, contribute, participation, part, partner, community. What do they all have in common? Well, very simply, they have generosity in common. The heart of koinonia is generosity. Right? They are all tied in some way to sharing or giving or contributing or partnering. What that tells us, y'all, is that the heart of community is generosity. So if what we call community is not a manifestation, an experience of generosity, it's not community. Okay? We're going to dig into that a little bit. Uh, what I want you to do, though, is I want you to see that that explodes out of this passage. Take a look again at, at our passage. I just want to reread this paragraph, and I want you to do it through the lens of looking for evidences of generosity, okay? Because this passage is like popping with it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles' And the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved. I mean, this passage is just popping with generosity, right? You have a need, I'm going to sell what I have, right? You need a meal, come on over and share it with me, right? There's a generosity of goods. There's a generosity of money. There's a generosity of life. There's a generosity of relationship that's just exploding out of this, this passage. They were insanely generous with their money, with their homes, with their lives. It's really cool, y'all. They they used things and loved people. The exact opposite of what we often do. They used things and loved people. Instead of treasuring their money, their privacy, and their freedom, and resenting people, they treasured people and gladly gave up their money, their privacy, and their freedom. In fact, verse 44 is is, um, really insightful. In verse 44 it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. The word for common is the Greek word koinos. It is the heart of koinonia. The heart of koinonia is the word koinos. It's the base word on which koinonia is built and it means common. The word is used here to describe all things being held in common. Listen, they were able to be generous with their things, with their time, with their lives, because they saw clearly what was sacred and what was common. Like they could see clearly what was sacred and needed to be protected and what was common and should be given away. And this is, y'all, why one of the reasons we have such a hard time with community. We get mixed up on what is common and should be given away freely and what is truly sacred and should be protected. We need to see that community is going to be hard for us for multiple reasons. First of all, I want you to see at this point that community, as we're describing it, isn't just something we add to the gospel. It is a necessary expression of the gospel because community is the expression of love, right? What does love do? Love gives. For God so loved the world that he gave, right? God loves, so God gives. When you love, what do you do? You lay down your rights and you give. When you love, you move into the uncomfortable. When you love, you move into the sacrifice you never thought you'd be able to make. When you love, you give up things you never thought you could give up. When you love, it reorients everything about what is sacred and needs to be protected and what is common and can be given away. And and what you find is that love is so sacred that everything else becomes common. And you're willing to give it up. The money, the position, the the freedom, the autonomy, the... Why? Why? Because we always sacrifice what is common for what is sacred. Love gives. Community is the necessary expression of love, right? So it is... The first and and foremost manifestation of the great command. Love, Lord God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. It is the first and foremost fulfillment of the great commission. Be disciples who make disciples. Be those who are growing the love of God and leading others to experience the love of God. But what I want you to see is that true community is going to be incredibly hard for us. It makes sense, but it's going to be hard. And there's a couple reasons, right? Um, The first... As I was really wrestling with this, the first significant barrier we're going to face is cultural. Um, we have made, and by we, I mean Western culture, right? America, North America, Europe, Europe Western cultures have created a, a, a shared a, created a shared culture. Culture is just our way of doing life in this world. Right, We've done this together. We've inherited a culture, we're shaped by that culture, and we shape the culture. We are cultural beings. That's how I'm using the terminology here. We are, by nature, as those who live in America, Western. Right, And, and as a Western culture, we have made idols. In other words, we've made sacred things, or whole, uh, 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 common things sacred. That's what an idol is. Something that shouldn't be sacred, we made it sacred. Right? We have made idols of things that undercut our ability to share life in true community. We, We, as a Western culture, we hold as sacred values like individual security, autonomy, freedom, privacy. In Western culture, these are like sacred things, which is why we resent anybody who comes to our door. Right Who are you to come knock on my door right and and don't even think about setting foot into my house without an invitation and, and probably shouldn't even think about setting foot on my property without an invitation, right? Um, if you think about the typical Western dream home, it's going to be detached, it's going to be private, and it's going to be protected right so you got an acre and a half out in the suburbs with a fence and a and a nice garage and you can just pull in and open the door pull into your garage close the garage you know you have neighbors around that you may or may not know you can occasionally entertain them but but man you can come back to the sacred temple of your private place my space that that is sacred autonomous private protected, right? That's our vision of of a dream home. And what I want you to see, first of all, is that's radically different than the experience of the early church. The early church lived in in an ancient Near Eastern culture, and and their culture is actually very similar today. Um, But they have a fundamentally different way of structuring values in culture, right? Instead of treasuring individual security, autonomy, freedom, and privacy, uh, they hold as sacred values like tribal honor, cultural, group honor, right? Community honor, community security. Um, they think in terms of we, not I. They value shared life and shared communal identity over individual freedom and autonomy. An ancient Jewish person didn't think of themselves as an individual Jew in covenant with God. They thought of themselves as part of the covenant community of of people with God. They thought of themselves not only as as me, but as us. We are Israel. We are God's chosen people. And that tribal identity, that that group identity, wasn't just for Israel, right? It was was true for, for all the ethnicities, right? There was a strong cultural um, group identity of of understanding themselves as members of something bigger than themselves, a culture, a family, a community, which is why they were more concerned with group honor than they were with individual success. They they weren't driven to, to make themselves great. They were part of a community, and they wanted the community to be great. Fundamentally different values that are manifestations of cultural values. As a result, their homes were very different than ours, right? When we read about them going from house to house, don't think about them going like backyard hopping in a suburb, right? Their homes were the marketplace. Their homes were compounds. You had multiple generations of people living in a single home, including all of the servants, and and most of the home was shared spaces. Right, They had private and shared spaces, but, but even then, the private spaces were often like, like, like a single room where a whole family would be sleeping together. Everything else, where they ate, where they went to the restroom, where they did their business, where they gathered, those were communal spaces. Right, They, they didn't have this, this desperate need for autonomy, individualism, and privacy, which absolutely, I think, helped the early church to thrive because... Um, as they invited people in, there was a cultural stream that was already moving in that direction. So first of all, what I want you to see is that the biblical community is going to be uniquely challenging to us as Western Christians because it is going to challenge some of our cultural idols, some of the things that we didn 't even know we should question. Some of the things that we didn 't even know were debatable, right We just inherited these values, have been shaped by these values, and have assumed these values but to recognize that they are, in fact, cultural values that can become competitive with the values of the kingdom. So first of all, as Western Christians, we are going to have a unique challenge because of these shared values. We're going to find ourselves in a battle of values. Are we going to value privacy more than we value friendship? Are we going to value autonomy more than we value service? Are we going to value individual security more than we value shared flourishing? Our values. Here's the thing, y'all. Our values need to be challenged. Our cultural values need to be challenged um, because they're aligned with the wrong purpose. The cultural values that we have created as a Western culture, just like with the Eastern, it was just a different, different problem because their cultural values were different from ours. Every earthly culture has aligned itself with the wrong purpose. Every human culture has created a way of trying to do life apart from the God who created life, of finding the flourishing of life apart from the God who gives that flourishing. Right? We've called that worldliness. Not we, the Bible, right? Every human culture is worldly. It it seeks to establish itself apart from God, to find the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it, right? It is defined by systems of doing life that are actually in competition with God instead of manifestations of humble dependence on God. I will find my own significance. I will find my own security. I will will make myself worthy of love and affection. I will find my own rest and pleasure. Right? We set ourselves up to pursue our deepest desires and competition with God. We need community. We need community to break free from these idols. Let me show you a passage from 1 John. This is 1 John. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it says this, do not love the world. The Greek word for world here is cosmos. Um, It it does not mean the terrain under our feet, right? When you think about about the English word cosmos, what we think about is the ordered system of the universe, right? The cosmos. That, That is reflective of the original meaning in the Greek. Right? It means the ordered systems of doing life in this world, not the earth itself. Right. So when it says, do not love the world, he's not saying don't love the dirt. You can love the dirt. The dirt is awesome. Okay, uh, If you're a gardener and you like to have it on your fingernails, praise God. You don't need to feel guilty about that. He's saying don't love the systems of the world. The, the systems we create to find life apart from the God who is life. Right to find the flourishing of life apart from the God who gives flourishing. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are two diametrically opposed directions in life. Right? To love the world is to love the flourishing of life apart from the God who gives it. The love of the Father breaks us of our pride and gives us a responding love for God. When we have tasted the love of the Father, we want to be close to the Father. We want to grow with the Father. We want to be in the presence of the Father, which is the exact opposite of worldliness. We we want to do everything we can to move back into the presence of God who gives the flourishing of life. That's why he says those who love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Those are two diametrically opposed forces, right? For all that is in the world, he goes on, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The word desires is the Greek word epithume, uh, which, which just simply means desires. We, we translate it lust sometimes or greed. All those are the same, again, aspects of greed we tend to think of in terms of materialism. Uh, lust we tend to usually think of in terms of sexual uh, uh, desire, strong desires. Whatever, right? He's saying the desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh are manifestations. We have deep desires within us that drive us, right? So so all that is in the world is the result of these deep desires driving us and the combination of pride. And it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world is passing away, right? This this system that we've created to do life apart from God, it's passing away along with all of its its desires, its mispointed desires, its deceptive promises. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. All right, John is telling us that the love of the Father is going to call us as followers of Christ out of our worldliness. Right? Those are two we can't be moving in two different directions simultaneously. We're either going to be growing in our love for God or we're going to be growing in our love for this world. We're either going to be growing in, in, in our faith in God or we're going to be growing in, in our, our false, deceptive uh, uh, buy in to the promises of this world, right? So the great command love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself tells us what we are created for. We are created to respond to the love of God with a responding love, and in that love, to love others. Instead of compete with others, right? And that's expressed in the great command to be disciples who make disciples. Be someone who's growing in that love and helping others grow in that love, right? When you do this, this is kind of the thrust of John. When you do this, it's going to free you from your slavery to worldliness. It's going to help you see what is truly sacred and what is common. It's going to reorient the values of your your heart. The two fundamental forces of worldliness are greed and pride. Greed and pride. Remember, desires, epithume. It can be lust, it can be, I I think greed, the broader terminology of greed is helpful because, because the thrust of worldliness is I need to keep what I have and get more when it comes to pleasure i got to keep what i have and get more when it comes to significance i got to keep what i have and get more when it when it comes to security i got to keep what i have and get more when it when it comes to my experience of people loving me and adoring me i need to keep what i have and get more there is a fundamental greed at the heart of worldliness because i can never i was designed to be loved by a god of infinite love to be treasured by a god who treasures me infinitely right so so Worldliness drives me with that desire for the infinite love of God into a world of finite things. And as a result, I have an insatiable desire. These, these lusts, these greeds drive me, right? And it's combined with pride, the boastful pride of life that I can actually find life apart from the God who is life, right? It's an insane pride. Greed and pride form the values of this world. Greed and pride are the heart of worldliness. Greed and pride are the heart of our restless rebellion against God. Listen, our worldliness is either going to kill our experience of community, which is an expression of love. Instead of keeping what I have and getting more, I'm giving who I am and what I have that we can experience more together, right? Worldliness is either going to kill our experience of community or our experience of community is going to kill our worldliness. Greedy love of self or the outward love of others is going to dominate our lives. Because in worldliness, other than competition. I'm comparing myself continually to others and I have to keep what I have and get more. I'm measuring myself by others. I'm am, I am esteeming myself in comparison to others. I, I live in competition. Love, man, I live in community. Instead of comparing myself, I forget myself. In the experience of simply giving myself in love to others, and, and the more we grow in the experience of love, the richer we all become. I give what I have, and I become more rich in the shared experience. Community is both the gift of grace and the weapon that grace uses against our pride and our greed. That means community is going to be hard. Community is the best gift that the gospel gives to us as a shared people. It is also the hardest gift. Because sometimes it's going to expand your joy, right? Sometimes you're going to be like, shared joy is double joy, And shared sorrow is half sorrow. And other times it's going to feel like you're dying. Because when community challenges your idols and your idols are being put to death, you're going to feel like you are dying. When you feel like those deep values that you thought you had to protect in order to protect your experience of the flourishing of life are being threatened and challenged and being put to death, you're going to feel like you're dying. But it's not you dying. It's your prison dying. It is the tight little cell of selfishness and self-focus, of greed and pride, dying. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean that 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 it's not going to challenge you and exhaust you. And at times you're going to be like, man, this doesn't give me any joy, it just exhausts me. Yeah. Okay. Keep pushing, you'll find the joy on the other side. What's the option? Go back to your idolatry? The false promises of worldliness? Keep pursuing the fullness of life by keeping what you have and getting more, even though nothing you have and no amount of it could ever give you the fullness of life? Come on, it's insanity. All right, one final slide. I'm going to wrap up with this. You guys are familiar with the 3G model of growth and grace. We've, we've used this over the years quite a bit. Um, the 3Gs are, are grace, gratitude, growth. Right, And the way we explain that is when you experience grace, God's outpouring of love, it awakens within you a responding gratitude. So grace comes to us when God's justice is met by God's mercy. We're amazed by the beauty of that gift. That awakens within us a humility in the gift and a love for the giver. That combination is gratitude. Way more than just thankfulness. It is a profound experience of gratitude that arises from a humble heart in love toward the one who's given a profound gift, right? So grace produces gratitude, which then propels us to grow. Growth is what happens when when we push through discomfort to experience more grace. And as we push into growth, it forces us back to grace. We have to go back to grace to renew our strength, to continue growing, which reawakens our gratitude, which gives us more energy to grow. And it's the growth that pushes us back to grace, right? This is the dynamic process of transformation in the Christian life. What I'm showing you right now is the original model. This is what I first drew up. The three G's were a little different. It was grace, gratitude, and generosity. And it was because of this word right here. I changed it later for clarity. We, we, our team talked about it. And we ended up deciding to go with growth instead because we thought that gave a broader meaning. But the heart of it is gra- uh, generosity, y'all. Because grace is the expression of generosity. It is a generous God loving us in spite of our sin. It's a generous God giving himself to us in spite of our rebellion. It is God meeting us in our need with his provision, right? It is is the Holy Son of God emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant. Grace is generosity. It is love giving unconditionally. And, And when you receive that kind of love, it awakens within you the profound experience of gratitude. And it is gratitude that propels you into the discomfort of loving others like you've been loved. It is by receiving the generosity of God that you will learn to be generous with others. You need community not only to set you, to, to, ex- to expand your experience of joy, but to set you free because it's when you push into the discomfort of community. Right? I'm not talking about having your friends over for a Pinterest-worthy meal. right? I'm not talking about... about you know, inviting somebody over in your spare time. I'm talking about like actually pushing into the generosity of life where you are sacrificing for someone else's good. You are sacrificing your comfort. You are sacrificing your time. You are sacrificing your energy for someone you may not even like. But you have chosen to love. That will awaken your need for grace. And as it awakens your need for grace, it will renew your experience of gratitude. And as you get freed in gratitude, you will learn to love more freely. It is breaking you free from the cell of your self-centered individualism. It is breaking you free from, from, from this dark little place that you crave. Because you can imagine once you're there, somehow you can be God. It's breaking you free out of the insanity of worldliness so that you can once again see what is genuinely sacred and genuinely common. Y'all, we need community. We need it. Not just because it expands our joy, it does. Not just because it increases our experience of love, it does. We need community because we cannot grow spiritually without it community is the first manifestation of having experienced love of God and community is one of the most powerful tools God gives us to go to war with the idols of our hearts to set us free All right, y'all I'm going to close this in a word of prayer for this morning we're going to share communion and, um, and wrap it up let me pray for us Father I thank you that you love us Thank you that that you sent Jesus to die for us while we were yet sinners and enemies, that that you didn't wait until we were attractive neighbors. (laughs) You loved us so that we could become lovable. You you entered our mess to set us free from, from our mess. You entered in even while we were yet enemies. Christ died for the ungodly. What an incredibly beautiful proclamation that is. That we could be set free from the prison of our insanity, our, our sin, our self-centeredness our, from competition back to community, back to love, Lord awaken our desire to taste more of that, even as John said, those who have tasted the love of the Father, and they just they just start gagging. On love of the world. Once we start waking up to the reality of true love, true freedom, we start gagging on these false substitutes of, of individual autonomy and personal glory and 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 just worldly ways of measuring ourselves compared to others. Set us free, Lord, into the beauty. And go to war with the idols of our hearts that enslave us and keep us from you. In the name of our one true Savior, Jesus. Amen.